Welcome to D-Listers of History, a podcast about people you've never heard of who changed the world. I'm one of your hosts, Fega. The legacy of European colonialism permeates the most seemingly innocuous parts of life. Most of us don't think too hard about where our favorite coffees, teas, chocolates, etc. come from, but you don't need to dig very deep to be horrified by what you find. Once you know about these bloody legacies and present-day realities, it can be hard to figure out what you can do about it. The history of British tea in particular is wrapped up in abuse, violence, and a somewhat bizarre story of a Scottish man named Robert Fortune sneaking into mainland China to engage in grand theft tea, as it were. To discuss Fortune's life, the history of tea, and the current state of the tea industry, I spoke with tea expert and blogger Nicole Wilson, founder of the blog teaforme.com. Welcome, Nicole, to Delicious of History. I'm really excited to have you. Nicole is a tea expert. And so could you tell me a little bit about what that is and what you do? Thanks so much for having me. So I'm a tea writer and educator. I've been writing about tea. Um, my blog will actually be 16 years in October. So I've been writing about tea for quite a while. It's really something I'm super passionate about. And really, I, I primarily just love teaching people about tea because it's super fascinating, especially as an American. You know, most people think of tea as just your Lipton tea bag. But there's so much more to it than that, that it's this real rabbit hole that I'm still going down, you know, 16 years later. Awesome. Wow, you're really like an OG blog. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's like two guys that have blogs older than mine that like still post periodically. Otherwise, I could say I'm the oldest blog. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you and Will Wheaton. Yeah. Um, <laughs> tea is I, I'm a bit of a coffee drinker, but I've, I've gotten into tea, especially as I've tried to cu cut back on my caffeine intake. It, there's so much to know about it. it. It can be really dizzying. What's particularly interesting to me as a historian is all the legends about how tea was developed. So what are what's like your favorite, like how tea came to be story? Because there's a ton of them. Yeah, there is a lot. One that I found interesting was um, the one of Bodhidharma that, you know, he was meditating for like eight years and at one point faltered and kind of like fell asleep. And he was so angry with himself for falling asleep that he ripped off his eyelids and where they landed in the ground, the first tea plant grew. And tea was, you know, definitely used a lot by monks in meditation because it does give you that kind of like wakeful mindful wakeness where compared to coffee, you get that like rush and crash. But tea is a little bit more of a sustained wakefulness. So it definitely there's a lot of associations with tea and, you know, Buddhism and monks, um, you know, in the early years of, you know, when people first started drinking tea. Yeah. And there's so much tradition around it. I used to do student tours and I would once a year around the time of year, actually around the new year, would take Chinese student groups here and one one year, they're like principal and like some other important people came and we were supposed to like have dinner together. And I remember feeling so out of my depth because I was like, I don't know what is happening. 
we're like tapping our tea glasses and I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm just going to have to play the stupid American because I was not, if I'd known this was going to happen, I would have done my research. It was, there's a lot, like there's a lot of like, a lot of tradition and stuff and a lot of like the ways you do things yeah. around tea. Yeah, I absolutely. Really I mean, cool. people, tea is one of the oldest beverages in the world. So there's just an immense amount of history behind it that really like America wasn't even a thought. <laughs> yeah, no, until we started throwing it in the water and even yeah. then. <laughs> questionable um so yeah so tea for americans is directly associated i think a lot of times with great britain but they came by their tea habit in the way that great britain comes by most things which is by conquest and colonialism exactly (laughs) (laughs) well initially they they bought the tea from the dutch who i guess was kind of like stepping into colonialism a little bit um but then they were like yeah we're just going to do this on our own (laughs) yeah well the British really like to control the market. Mm-hmm. I found that apparently what was like a big moment for tea in Britain was when Catherine of Braganza married Charles II in 1662, and her dowry included a chest of tea and and the control of Mumbai, which is such a 17th century thing. Like Definitely. my dowry includes this city on the other side of the planet. Definitely. And at that time, tea was really reserved for people like her that were royalty. You know, your average person was drinking ale most of the time because water wasn't safe. (laughs) Yeah, I saw a thing about how when tea became more ubiquitous among like the working classes, instances of waterborne illness went down because you have to boil the water. Absolutely. Yeah. We just didn't know that that was like the what was happening. Um, They were just boiling the water to make tea, not realizing that they were killing pathogens at the same time. Yeah, because we hadn't figured out germ theory just yet. (laughs) When Mumbai became part of, I guess, Charles II's stuff, the control was eventually passed to the East India Company. East India Company is a joint stock company that became England's representative, wielder of colonial power. And I was in a mood when I wrote these in India and the surrounding region. This went as far as like responsibility for government and military force, which I know I've always found really fascinating because when I think a company, I'm thinking, you know, like a corporation and not that corporations don't have a lot of power like we're in America. Yeah, they do. But there's something weird to me about a, a company having an army. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's definitely a very unusual circumstance, I think, for world history for a corporation to really have that much power. Yeah, it's very it's it's so it's almost like dystopian, except it was in the past. Yeah, so the best tea though was pretty much exclusively grown in China at the time, along with other specialty goods like silk and porcelain. And England had a huge trade deficit with China because of all this. China was, I China's an interesting one in sort of the history of colonialism because they really they they worked really hard to try to keep their independence for a really long time. Um, not that other places didn't, but I guess China was more successful for longer, I guess was what one might say. And they, they knew what they had and they didn't want to let go of it. But when as opium became popular across China, that trade deficit swapped because opium was coming from India. And at the time, Britain had colonized India at that point. So uh, they were making lots of money off of the opium trade. So the chi- the Chinese government tried to make opium illegal because opium is like bad for you. I mean, they were worried about the trade deficit, but I think they were also worried about the populace somewhat. Like opium dens are a thing. Like, yeah, absolutely. I mean, they basically, you know, 
Britain really didn't have anything of value to trade China because they had all the things everyone else wanted, you know, um, so they were trading silver, which, you know, they didn't see as a good deal, you know, but basically they created a nation of drug addicts, um, you know, that it was really not a great time, I would imagine, for, you know, China at the time. Um, And that's really what led to the opium wars that, you know, basically China you know, there was a general who burned a shipment of opium, very like, you know, Boston Tea Party style, just was like, yeah. you know, this can't stand. And they burned it. And that's what turned into, you know, the first opium war. And kind of in between that first and second opium war is when Britain was like, well, we're just going to take tea then. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. So the just for people so they know the timing, first opium war gets started in 1839. The Chinese government, they didn't just burn down that one ship. They like seized all these like pseudo government entities that were called factories that had opium in Canton. And they were just like, we're not, we're not doing this. Um, <laughs> we're done with this opium business. Uh, but Britain did what they do best, which is governed by the point of the sword. And they won the first opium war. And they got, this was 1842, and you have the Treaty of Nanjing, which, mu- among other things, cr- uh, ceded Hong Kong to Britain, which is interesting because that just finally went back not that long ago. Yeah, it's super recent, which is like yeah. really fascinating, definitely. I remember as a kid learning about the First Opium War and thinking, oh, that's going to happen in my lifetime. And it's it's been just as complicated as I thought it was going to be. And so they, uh, Hong Kong became British. Five ports were opened up for international trade because this was a big thing because China was like, we'll trade with you, but we, we want to keep everybody like really at a distance. So they, more ports for trade were opened up and Britain got favored nation state status, which meant that the British, among other things, that British representatives had extra legal authority so they didn't have to follow China's laws. And of course, they could keep selling opium. And in fact, China, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe they had to pay Britain back for the opium that they they burned. Yeah, they had to make restitution to Britain, which was incredible that that wound up being how that went. But yeah, it 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 really did change a lot of things. Um, they were still very restrictive where, you know, those specific ports were really the only place that foreigners could go. They could only were only allowed to travel within like a day's journey from there. Um, and China is incredibly vast. It's it's a massive country, but even to think of you know back then they didn't have the planes, trains, and automobiles that we have now to you know move people and access the interior part of the country. Yeah, it's so so big. It's it's one of those things that like I feel like there's lately on social media there's been a lot of like your peop- Americans laughing about Europeans not understanding how big America is, and I feel like I don't really understand how big China is. Yeah, partially because of the way it's drawn on the map, uh, which is a whole that's a whole history <laughs> of why why countries are the sizes they are on uh, the the world map. Uh, in case anyone doesn't know, they are not accurate to actual size. Yeah. So the Westerners, they weren't permitted on the interior of the country, which is where all the tea cultivation was happening. And the Chinese government knew what they were doing. They're like, we we have a good thing going on here and we don't want to mess it up. Like, this is ours. And they, I mean, they have so many stories around tea of like the there was an emperor who they said invented tea. It's a huge part of the culture. And they knew that if if uh, 
the British got their hands on it, that would not be good news for them. Uh, but East India Company, they want their own source of tea. They want to stop paying these high prices to the Chinese government. And so they keep trying to create their own source of tea in India, but it was not going well. Are you able to talk a little bit about like what goes into tea cultivation? I promise we're getting to the person. I just want to make sure I have all this background Yeah, stuff. so tea <laughs> is, um, it's a camellia. So it's very, it's actually related to like camellias that you might use in like your garden on your front lawn, but not all of them taste good. It just happens that the one that's used for tea does taste good when it's processed the right way. Tea really likes to grow generally higher elevations is kind of where the best tea comes from. So the East India Tea Company first started growing tea. They were mostly based in Assam, where tea was already growing. Basically, you know, southern India is not that far from the very far west of China. Plants don't know boundaries and, you know, <laughs> things that we set up. You know, plants already naturally migrated from, you know, Yunnan in China and Myanmar over to Assam in India. It's a much different um, environment there where it's very, very hot. And the the tea plant itself has two main varieties. There's Camellia sinensis sinensis. Um, and sinensis basically just means Chinese. And then Camellia sinensis asamica. And so the asamica variety has bigger leaves and really prefers that hot, humid, almost jungle-like environment. The problem is that that plant really won't grow anywhere that doesn't have that kind of, um, you know, environment around it. So, you know, when they were trying to expand the tea industry to other parts of India, they just weren't working very well. So that was why the, the British basically colonized an area of India called Darjeeling, which they were using as a hill station. Um, it's up in the Himalayas. It's very cool um, compared to a place like Assam. So the soldiers would kind of go up there for a little vacation to get a break from the heat. And that was where they ultimately we're trying to establish tea because it has a similar climate to a lot of the places in China where tea already grows. I, as I understand it, the Assam, the original Assam variety, the British public didn't, just didn't like very much either. Like it was more bitter. Yeah, it, which is interesting because that's actually the type that they kind of prefer now. Um, yeah. That, you know, <laughs> tea consumption has definitely changed over time, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So the reason I gave all this background is because we're going to talk about this guy, Robert Fortune. Robert Fortune was born September 16th, 1812, though when he rose to prominence, the year his year of birth was changed to 1813, which I think is so great. This was to hide the fact that his mother was seven months pregnant with him when she got married. That's interesting. Yeah. So that's your that's your like tiny town in Scotland drama for the day. He was from Scotland. <laughs> Most scientists in that era were gentlemen. So these are people who had the wealth to support themselves while pursuing knowledge. So Fortune was not of this background. He was he has of a common background. His father was a hedger. I was unsuccessful in finding out what precisely a hedger does. Logically, it's someone who maintains hedges, but when you put hedger in to Google today, you get all this stuff about like investments. So <laughs> Um, I, I was not yeah. very successful. I think they, they used hedges to kind of separate fields of farms back then rather than using fences because wood is like a really valuable resource. So I think that's probably more like what he did, meaning maintaining those kind of boundary lines. But the important part of that is that it involves plants. And he learned a lot from his father. 
And he also got, he completed an apprenticeship, which gave him a first class certificate in horticulture, which was a trade qualification, which isn't, it, when you wanted to get into botany in those days, that wasn't what you'd get. You would, you know, go to a university, ideally one of the fancy ones like Oxford, and you would get a medical degree in addition to whatever other science degree. And so he didn't have any of that stuff, but he was really good at what he did. So he rose up the ranks quickly. Uh, he moved from the Botanic Garden in Edinburgh to the Royal Horticultural Society's Gardens in Chiswick. He was married by this time to a woman named Jane, and they had two children, John Lindley and Helen Jane. We don't know a ton about Jane, as far as I can tell. He didn't write about her very much, which is really unfortunate because she did a lot <laughs> to keep things going. She was critical to his success because she was the one who was not just raising the kids, but she like grew food so that the family could eat when he was making like basically no money and handling all of his accounts when he was out of the country. And I mean, she was his accountant, basically. Pretty much. And and back then, it you know, it wasn't just a quick, you know, week vacation to Shanghai. It was he was gone for years at a time. Yeah. And she kept kept things going at home on really very little money, as we'll get to. So the natural world was of great interest to Victorians at this time. The Enclosure Acts had made farming a more and more difficult prospect for the average person. There's a lot of different Enclosure Acts. You could do a whole episode on just the Enclosure Acts. They stretch back to the 17th century. And I think the last ones were in like the mid 20th century or something. But these are basically, this is big nutshell of a big top, little nutshell of a big topic. It's basically taking land that was previously public and making it private. So this looks different depending on the era. In this era, we're kind of looking at the land going to the wealthy landowners to put sheep on. And then we've figured out that making making fabric is a pretty great way to make money. And Britain was like way ahead of everybody on that one. And so people were moving to the city and they really craved that like natural world. So people were, got really into like potted plants. And that's why a lot of Victorian things have like lots of like pictures of, of flowers on them. Um, and everyone, like pretty much everyone would have like at least like a little window box that they took care of. And the gentry, of course, had to just do that and make it extra. So <laughs> they would just do that even more so. My favorite example I found was in 1856, the Sixth Duke of Devonshire paid 100 guineas, which today comes out to about $15,000 for an orchid. So that's what the gentry were doing. It's a lot of money to be made in fancy plants. And around that time, we also have the foundation of the Royal Horticultural Society. And so they were interested in expanding their library of seeds and plants for members. And they noticed his the work that Fortune was doing at Chiswick. He was really good with hothouse flowers. And so they decided to send him on an expedition to China for the acquisition of plants once the Opium War was over. So this is his first time going. And normally an exhibition would be gone on by a gentleman. So the wages reflected that. He was paid about 100 pounds a year, which comes out to about 15K today, which it's always tough to do these, these, these number games with currency because what you can buy with currency changes over time. And so what, you can't just like do the math and understand. But, but when you just do the math, it comes out to $15,000. 
He tried to get more money and he was told this quote. I was like, wow. And he was told the mere pecuniary returns of your mission ought to be but a secondary consideration next to the distinction and status, which you could not have attained any other way, which I feel like is a very fancy way of saying, be grateful for what we give you commoner. Yeah. And especially a trip to China like that was really quite dangerous for a foreigner to undertake at that time, especially without given being given the full backing of financial, you know, things like weapons to defend yourself. Um, you know, he really was putting everything on the line. Yeah, like he he did get them to provide weapons eventually, but that was like a fight because a gentleman would have just had his own weapons to bring with him. But he his exhibition was a success. He brought back a ton of plants, lots of really in-depth field notes and uh, a cu- and the kumquat which I didn't realize was under the genus Fortunella. So that was kind of fun for me to find out. I love kumquats. Uh, he, like, I guess, like, climbed over a wall and, like, stole it from somebody's garden kind of thing, which is basically most of what he does. What really made him a star, though, in Britain was in 1847, he wrote a travelogue, Three Years' Wanderings in the Northern Provinces of China. And if there's anything Victorians love more than fancy plants, it was an adventure story about a white guy making his way through some colonized land with only his wits and a large number of paid local assistants helping him out. <laughs> so that that really got him very, uh, very, it's a wild story. He gets like waylaid by pirates at various points, which according to his account, which is the only account we have, he was like instrumental in saving the day in a way that is, I'm a little skeptical of. Absolutely. Yeah, there's definitely (laughs) some like consensus now that those journals may have been embellished a bit. As you mentioned, he was the only person there that could share his side of the story. So, you know, a Scottish farm boy might as well, you know, make it sound like he's the hero. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of especially like the pirates where there's a lot of like, everybody else was cowering in the corner. And I'm like, I, I feel like They've probably interacted with pirates before. This isn't like like pirates on the on the rivers of China was a pretty typical thing. <laughs> I don't think people were like surprised. Um, but he, you know, st- stood up and saved the day and whatever. But he like had to dress as a Mandarin, which were like the upper class, as I understand it. Of there's a lot of Chinese history I'm not going over around like different ethnic groups being in power at various points. Uh, that you can get really in the weeds. But the mandarins were the ones who were like the fancy people at the time. And he he dressed in that style, shaved his head, added uh, the braid on the back so he could sneak into like forbidden cities and stuff like that. Like he really went all out. And of course, this book also involves all the casual racism you'd expect from a British Victorian. It's whatever you're thinking, you're probably right. Like it's it's pretty typical. Although I did enjoy this has nothing to do with anything, but he didn't think Hong Kong was going to grow into anything. I know. So uh, <laughs> that that didn't happen. He was wrong. He comes home. He's hired by. Oh, sorry. He's hired to care for the Chelsea Physic Garden, which is by the Thames River, which is like a highly coveted position. It's like usually goes to like, again, somebody who's not a commoner. And once again, his salary was only 100 pounds a year. But at least this time he got a place to live. So I imagine that helped a little bit. And a lot of what he did there was like creating these greenhouses. And this was like some 
greenhouses weren't new technology, but there was a new technology at the time, these Wardian cases that are really critical, which are basically like little baby greenhouses that you can carry around with you. If anybody's ever seen those things on social media where they'll they'll be like a these huge a huge jar that has like a whole ecosystem living inside where it'll be like, I haven't opened this jar in forty years or whatever, and there's like moss and all kinds of stuff. That's a wardian case essentially. It's a self contained plant growing unit. We call them terraniums now. But the guy who invented them. I guess, seemed Ward. The East India Company noticed the work he was doing around these greenhouses. And one of the big limitations around the transportation of tea plants was that they're like super delicate. And sea travel is hard on all plants. There's lots of salt in the air. There's a lot of just, you know, moving around. Plants, it's it's funny. I Our, our co-host, Mazal, is a, a, a passionate plant person. And it's always funny to me because... You go outside, like I'm the one who goes outside and has to like rip the weeds out from between like the cracks in the pavement because we live in the city. And she like has to like baby these poor things. <laughs> it's like measuring the pH and like how much of this type of substrate do you put in and all this stuff. I get, I, I make her mad sometimes by just calling it dirt because it is not dirt. I know it's not dirt, it's substrate, but um there's a lot that goes into it. And I can't imagine taking something, especially like a seedling, and putting it on a boat for six months and expecting it to get to where it needed to go. So this was part of the problem with this with this East India Company's tea plans was not only the acquisition of the tea plants, but like how do you get them from China to the Himalayas? So this was a much, much better deal for Robert Fortune than anything he did with the Royal Horticultural Society. He was offered 500 pounds a year which comes out to like 94K or so today. So that must have been life-changing in a lot of ways. And his expenses was, were paid for, including the cost of cargo. And he would be given property rights to any other plants he collected on his trip, which meant that he could sell what he brought back to wealthy collectors, anything that wasn't a tea plant, which was a really, definitely a boon. And he was tasked with collecting seedlings and seeds for both green and black tea. So this was something I learned from this is what's the difference between green and black tea? <laughs> so he was actually the first to discover, you know, when you're just seeing the final product, everyone assumed that green tea and black tea were different things. Um, but he discovered that tea all comes from one particular type of plant. Um, so they're all Camellia sinensis. And it's really how the leaves are processed that determine whether it becomes green tea, black tea, or any of the other types of tea. So he was definitely like originally they, they, had to rename the nomenclature for tea plants because they had made separate ones for black green tea and black tea. I thought this was so, I mean, I, I guess I never really thought about it that much, but um, I thought this was really interesting. I didn't realize black tea was, um, was it fermented, I guess, to give it the stronger, the stronger everything really. Yeah. A lot of places use um, fermentation. It's a little bit of like a misnomer because there's not actually like fermentation like you would see with like beer or kombucha, mm -hmm. but it's basically oxidation. So like the same process, if you cut open an apple and you leave it out and it turns brown, that's basically what happens to the tea leaves. Um, so the theoretically black tea should be, you know, close to fully oxidized, where green tea, you're basically heating the leaves during processing to stop as oxidation from happening. Yeah, that was like 
So there's so much that goes into all of this. So Fortune, by the time he comes, he comes back to China. He speaks a little Chinese, but not enough to get on on his own. Although this is sort of like clearing the bar. So basically, but I'm impressed he spoke any Chinese. Um, yeah, for a Victorian Scottish man, that's impressive. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but he still needed interpreters. So he he goes to China. He hired an interpreter named Wang who came from the Sunglow Mountain uh, region of the, uh, I'm going to probably pronounce this wrong, so please correct me, Anhui province, that was known for its green tea. And Wang spoke a language known as Pigden, which was developed in the port cities for communicating with Westerners. So it's a mix of Chinese, English, some Hindi, and some Portuguese. And Fortune was able to understand this language as well. And there was another person he hired that he never gave the name of, who was carrying things, basically. Was the, the carrier of stuff while he was there. So he wasn't allowed to go into the center of China. This was super not allowed. And this is this is great. We were talking about this a little bit before we press go, that Fortune had to like super go undercover. And this is wild to me. <laughs> that this like, you look at pictures of him and he was like not, he was a big Scottish dude. Yeah, the button chops. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he He does not, I mean, he looks like he's from the place he's from. And it's it's amazing to us today to imagine that he could possibly pass as Chinese for any amount of time. But part of this whole thing of not allowing Westerners or anyone really, any foreigners, into the center of China meant that people – and also because China is so vast and it was some areas were difficult. Like getting to this green tea region wasn't – I mean, it wasn't like easy, but it wasn't that difficult in comparison to other places. But there were people who were really isolated and never met anybody who wasn't from their region. So if you told them that he was from the north, they were like, okay, I guess that's what people look like from the north. It's still wild to me, though, that he got away with this. So he travels to the center of China. He dresses up all that. He goes to Anhui and uh, Zhejiang, I think. In search of this green tea, tons of cultural issues with Wang. Um, how a lot of these interpreters made money was by basically just put, you know, padding prices. And there was just a lot of like he didn't. He clearly did not understand the idea of marking up things that I think today we just take for granted. Like, yeah, you, he's Wang's not doing this out of the goodness of his heart. You're like he's here to make money. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was a little skeptical of some of the – there was a lot of the story about Wang like really kind of overstepping a lot of this stuff. And I have to admit I'm a little skeptical of it for that same reason we said before of like we only have Fortune's perspective. And it just feels feels like I'd like to know both both sides before I made a judgment call on who was wrong <laughs> on this particular issue. But he also didn't understand the concept of saving face which is still something that's very different between a lot of like European cultures and a lot of um, Asian cultures. And so he gets out there, he gets a bunch of tea and <laughs> how, so how did he get this tea? Because this was like, this was interesting to me how he, how he acquired the tea. Yeah. So um, part of it was basically just bribing people. He was kind of posing as this like very affluent merchant. Um, so, you know, in addition to tea plants and tea seeds, he also needed to bring people because you can just have the plant, but you have to know actually how to turn it into the finished product. 
to be able to actually make tea yourself. It's a lot harder than it looks, even like as a person who knows a lot about tea, I have attempted and it's very, very difficult to really get it to actually taste as good as something you might buy, you know, from a store. Um, so it really, he really just, you know, presented himself as, you know, offering adventure to these people, you know, saying, you know, come with me and we'll make tea. And, you know, so he, they brought workers from China um, in addition to the plants and the seeds. Yeah. And he made a really big discovery about green tea, not just that green tea and black tea are the same plant. He made another really big discovery about green tea while he was there because he was also trying to learn as much as he could outside of just bringing people about the process. So he went to a green tea factory and he found out that uh, the the practice we have today of trying to make things look pretty is not new. <laughs> so what are I don't know if you want to talk about what what he found out about green tea. Yeah. So, I mean, green tea is not super shelf stable. Um, you know, when you buy it, you should really drink it within the year because it will start to lose its flavor, its character, and it'll start to oxidize. So it just won't actually look green anymore, which is pretty unappetizing if what you want is green tea. So they were actually adding like a blue powder to the tea to give it this like very green, fresh appearance so that by the time it made that journey overseas all the way to England, it would look as green as people expected it to be. And so super not great to just add chemicals to your tea for color purposes, you know. Um, and it was definitely... It's an interesting thing, though, because later on, you know, when Japan started making tea, they actually had to start adding the blue powder because people demanded it. <laughs> so it's like a little bit of like, you know, we want it, but don't we? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think of this sort of as, as very similar to like you go to the grocery store now and all the apples look perfect, mm -hmm. right? You don't have any weird misshapen apples. And people say that they don't want the bad things that go along with that. But then then people don't buy the weird misshapen apples. Exactly. And there's other ones. So this is kind of like that, too. So they're also putting like plaster in it and gypsum, which can be poisonous in large amounts. But like not you'd have to drink a lot of this tea, I think, to have had a negative impact. But that's still that made the East in that discovery probably paid for his trip several times over. Because now the East India Company could claim that the Chinese were doctoring the tea. Absolutely. Um, you know, as they, they really built up their tea production, they coined a term called empire tea. That, you know, they were really pushing that concept of that empire tea is safest. That was definitely a big part of their marketing campaign for that. Yeah, like they presented it at like, he, like Fortune like stole some of the like the powder and stuff and put it on display at the London Great Exhibition of 1851. Like they... They really, uh, they really use this to its maximum, maximum they could. So he gets all this tea. He like bribes people. There's like, I did enjoy some of the stories of him like bribing children to be like, I'm looking for this thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Where have you seen it? You know, <laughs> and like climbing into people's yards and stuff. Like it's just like when I was doing my research, I found a book that claimed that Fortune had not stolen the tea, and I was like, I'm. No. Like <laughs> even today, like Monsanto will sue someone for reproducing their corn. Like it people yeah. are, have always been very protective protective of their, you know, products. Yeah, understandably. Yeah. So he goes back to Shanghai and he has to like plant these seedlings and make them grown enough to survive the transport to India. And he also has to figure out how to send these seeds. 
And so he tries, he, he creates a bunch of Wardian cases. He puts the seedlings in them and he packed the seeds in a variety of different materials. And there was like rice ash and there was like just pieces of like fabric and things. And he sent them all off on different ships. Well, the seeds were on different ships. The seedlings were all on the one and sends them off. He stays with them until they're until Hong Kong. He sends them off to Calcutta. But for some reason, the ship does not go to Calcutta. It went to Sri Lanka first, causing the shipment to be months late. But Wardian cases are pretty impressive. When Hugh Falconer, who is the sort of head agriculture guy for the East India Company in China, or sorry, India, received the Wardian cases, he, he reported that they were in good condition and he sent them on their overland journey to the Himalayan mountains. And this is where things go wrong, <laughs> even more wrong. Because uh, someone along the way opened the cases, which is not what you do with Wardian cases. Definitely. It defeats the entire purpose. So by the time they got to Darjeeling, it was like they were just mo- most of them were dead. It was like a thousand had survived out of 13,000 seedlings. And on top of that, the guy who was there, William Jameson, he ran the botanical outpost there. And he was a Nepo baby. He got the job because like his uncle knew Charles Darwin <laughs> like it was and he had absolutely no idea what he was doing but had very strong convictions about how things should be done and it seemed like he's a good example I, I feel like of the Dunning-Kruger effect of like the the less you know the more you think you know <laughs> so he like went on this whole thing about how these Wardian cases were like not the way to do it and he like wrote this whole thing to fortune being like this is how you should send stuff which is cute because like while this wasn't successful, Fortune was like the expert <laughs> in in the transportation of plants at this point. Yeah. Um, and he also would ignore the Chinese workers. This was like later when the Chinese workers were there, he would just ignore their advice on like how much water to give the tea. Like it was wild, this man. Yeah, he he put irrigation in the tea fields, which is absolutely not a thing that's done in China. You might find it done today in places like Kenya that are very dry that are growing tea. But tea is pretty picky where like it likes water, but it doesn't like to be wet. And so <laughs> irrigating the plants basically just made them rot away. <laughs> the, the, and they, they had so few because mm-hmm. somebody opened the wordy in cases, which is like... <laughs> Fortune back in China doesn't find out about all this for a while. He goes on another journey to Fujian, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, to acquire black tea. And to be perfectly honest, like all the cultural ineptitudes and all this stuff, like it just it keeps happening. Like I think a good like third of the book I read was basically just like here's all the things that Robert Fortune did that were kind of offensive. But it's it's it was much harder to get over to that part of the country because you couldn't just like take a boat. Like you had to climb over mountains and stuff to get over there. Um, But he gets over there. He stays at a Buddhist monastery, which is where he took these really intense notes about how to prepare tea. So I was wondering if you would talk a little bit about that, about the the proper preparation of tea. He was a very particular guy. And he like wrote down like, this is how you boil the tea. This, all of the, all the steps. Yeah. I mean, the, one of the cool things about tea for me is that there really isn't a proper way to do it. The way the tea has, has been consumed has changed so much over time and evolved with different cultures. When people first started 
drink making tea and, and using it as a beverage it was really more like a soup so they would put like onions and spices and all kinds of other stuff in it um what onion you know, tea yeah um you know <laughs> Eventually, it did become this kind of like elitist thing, but they were grinding the tea into a powder. So the leaves were actually pressed into a cake, and then they would break a piece off and grind it into a powder and then whisk it. That was kind of like during the Song Dynasty, you had these like really intense tea competitions. And that's actually how like matcha, which is a tea from Japan, that was originally kind of like where that style of tea came from, um, that they then kind of made into their own. And then it was after that, that they went back to loose leaf tea. And so it there's just so many different iterations of tea because it's older than really living memory basically um that you know i i always say there really isn't a right way to do it because there's literally been every way possible this might take us on a tangent but i just remembered in in this is just very me but i found out about this on npr but apparently there was some drama online about putting salt in your tea yeah, there's an American scientist who wrote a book on like the chemistry of tea. And she had said that you should add it like a small pinch of tea t of salt to your tea to make it less bitter. All of us tea people, of course, were like, well, if you if you make it like in the way that it, you know, the which is kind of almost the opposite of what I just said in a way, but <laughs> correctly, like you're not, you know, oversteeping it. You're not using mm -hmm. too much tea or water that's too hot, depending on the type of tea. It really shouldn't be bitter, like to where you are uncomfortable to drink it, that you have to add salt. But culturally, like in the Himalayas in Tibet, they make tea with salt every day. That's their way of oh, making wow. tea. They, they mix the tea with yak butter and salt. And that's really their kind of like sustenance for the day because their area doesn't have a lot of vegetation. So, you know, they really get a lot of their sustenance from tea by mixing it with butter and salt that way, which was kind of like the inspiration. Like people were doing the whole thing of adding caught like Irish butter to their coffee. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Like the bulletproof coffee. That was kind of like the inspiration for it. I was wondering, especially because right now Starbucks has been doing this olive oil and coffee thing. And I just cannot wrap my brain around it. There's just too many steps between how I encounter how I interact with coffee now and coffee with olive oil in it for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I heard they did a test in Italy and it kind of acted as a laxative. So I don't know if that's such a safe, safe coffee. To that was my first thought, I'll be honest, when I saw the sign. I was like, this feels this feels like maybe not the wisest decision. <laughs> um, but I don't know. I am not a coffee expert. So he goes off, he gets all this black tea, same deal. He's like bribing people and climbing into people's backyards and stuff. And he finds out how black tea is made and that it's the same actual like plant. And I think there's a little bit of a difference in how it's picked too. Like there's a lot of like, you can only pick like the first couple like the first the top of the tea like there's a lot that goes into it you can't just like take all the leaves off they are all good but then he he does all this he comes back to shanghai and this is when he finds out what happened to all of his poor tea seedlings that all got ruined on their way to their to the himalayas and he was sent like all of the bureaucratic like blame shifting like in a packet like because east india company they were a company so like everything was written down and they wrote down like everybody being like it's your fault it's your fault all there fortune was actually like i was sort of impressed at how like blase he was about it 
because I mean, I'd be pretty mad. Like, even though like he had found out that he didn't have to like go back and get more because it was the same stuff, but still, like, I'd be pretty mad because it was pretty stupid the entire thing. Definitely, I think maybe his background kind of allowed that because he wasn't part of that like bureaucracy. He was just like a Scottish farmer guy that like happened to be really passionate about plants where he wasn't really part of that like in crowd. Yeah. So he what he really focused on, though, was a better way to send the seeds because none of the seeds he had sent had germinated. So he came up with this like really interesting idea. So he also brought mulberry bushes to send to India because mulberry is what silkworms like to eat. And they were trying to figure out how to start some silk production in India as well. So he made these like big Wardian cases for these mulberry bushes. And after the plant had like gotten used to it, I guess mulberry bushes, not surprisingly, I guess they're a little hardier than tea. He would scatter the tea seeds all around the bush and then cover it with more soil. And he put these like crossbars in to make sure the soil in the cases would stay put even being on the ocean and stuff like that they would stay where they're supposed to and it worked great every single seed germinated this became the way to ship any plants really like they didn't have to send seedlings anymore this was like a huge huge innovation until i guess we've probably had better ways now but this was how how they did it for a long time finally the tea does end up in the himalayas and i believe this is when the people came along too yeah, so um, they they did bring people. There were a lot of issues. I mean, the people that came from China wound up being really unhappy. You know, they completely left everything behind, and it's not like they could just FaceTime, you know, their friends and family. Yeah. And there was a lot of trouble with, like, locals not getting along with them also. And, you know, generally that was kind of a tribal area before, you know, the British colonized it. So there just weren't workers, you know, enough to be able to support like industrial agriculture. Um, so they actually imported workers from Nepal to that area. And so that was kind of like their initial, you know, labor force for for the tea industry there. Yeah. And there was a lot of a lot of like what, what we would now call labor actions, where it was like the Chinese workers refused to be sent by themselves to different places, which I get. I wouldn't want to be the only person from my country in a place either. And they were they were really successful. Like they were just like, we're <laughs> we don't care. We're not going. And and they won. So good for them. Fortune to to be fair to Fortune, he did try to make sure these guys got a better deal than workers in the past who had come from China had gotten. It still wasn't. I think an appropriate amount for what they had given up, but he was at least thinking about that. <laughs> so that's something. He also thought it was very funny how upset everyone was to leave China, which is like, is this really that hard for you to understand, sir? It's pretty, pretty obvious. But they did bring the folks over. And this is when, this is like the beginning, as I understand it, of the Indian tea industry. Um, and you get all these hybrids and stuff. Yeah, so like they they started the industry primarily with the, you know, the Camellia sinensis sinensis plants that Robert Fortune had brought over. But over time, you know, tea has different cultivars and 
each plant can have different, you know, varieties that you might want to, or um, qualities to it that you might want to kind of keep. Um, so they did start hybridizing the Assamica from, you know, Southern India and Assam with the Camellia sinensis sinensis plants. And so those are really kind of like very specific to the Darjeeling area where the hybrid of those two varieties tends to do really well. Yeah. And this is like, I, I guess I never really, this is one of those things you just don't necessarily think about. I, I hadn't really thought about that Darj Darjeeling was like a place that the tea had come from. And I definitely didn't know that it was that, that this hybrid from this like weird, like Ocean's Eleven tea heist <laughs> um, sort of thing. Yeah. And Fortune at that point, he's he's. He's got it. He's got things pretty well made. He continued traveling in the region for the rest of his career. He like went to Japan at one point, wrote tons of books about his travels, and he died in 1880 in London. He's buried in Brompton Cemetery. And what I think is sort of what is interesting about Robert Fortune, well, his story really, less than him, uh, is the I'm trying to find the right words for this. It's the 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 fact that like it's it sort of let the cat out of the bag, right? Like China was really the only place you could get good tea. And after this, it really opened up, as I understand it, opened up tea to like different varietals in different places. And I don't, I, I'm curious what your thoughts are on this. I know for me, it's like a little bit of like a complex thing because obviously like going and stealing the tea was wrong, mm -hmm. but we wouldn't have all this, all these great hybrids and stuff without it. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a difficult thing a lot of times for tea drinkers, because if you look at, you know, the overall history of tea, there's a ton of colonialism and like not great things to grapple with, um, you know, but we also, as you said, things like, you know, you just wouldn't have the teas that we all you know and love to drink um, if tea had just stayed within China. So it really, the British, as they kind of went around the world collecting countries, they brought tea with them. So places like Sri Lanka, you know, um, Ceylon tea is something that is very, very popular in, you know, like for people in England, as well as lots of other places. Um, and Ceylon is what Sri Lanka was called when Britain owned it. They gained their independence, but they still do produce tea. And they actually kept the name Ceylon because people know it so well that they're like, nobody will buy the tea if we just call it Sri Lankan tea. Yeah. And it's this, it, it is this, and I, I, I grapple with this usually more around things like slavery and so forth. So I do more social history of being able to balance the good and the bad. But this just feels a little different because it's like literally theft. It's it, it just it just this was this was what Britain did. You know, they went in and they decided this is this is mine. You know, the, the, there's this part of me this like modern person is like, couldn't you just like have traded for all this stuff? Like, definitely, yeah. It makes me feel a little bit better drinking Darjeeling now that you know they gained their independence and mm -hmm. you know, most plantations are owned by Indian companies. You know, they're not colonized per se anymore. We definitely still have some ramifications of that well, sure. systems, though, um, especially like, say, somewhere like Darjeeling, the people who work on the plantations live on the plantation and their, you know, everything is provided for them by the plantation, which is that really anything different than a plantation, you know? <laughs> right. Because then, like, if you want to leave, you're losing everything. Yeah, Absolutely. So actually, I'm going to find out now how you pronounce the name of this company. <laughs> Is it Twinnings or Twinings? Oh, Twinings, yeah. 
Twinings. Okay. Mm-hmm. So Twinings, I found out through a sort of <laughs> literally from a TikTok. I was like, what? Um, that they actually are really upfront about the the frankly bloody history of tea on their website. Like they don't bury it. It's just there. Yeah. In a way that I found really impressive that like, because it's like, you can't go back and change it. And I don't know what they've done financially to make restitution, if anything, but it's definitely a step to just have it on your homepage (laughs) that like, yeah, we had an army and we like killed a lot of people. Yeah, no, it's definitely, I think, refreshing and something that the tea industry is really starting to do more and more because it's things like that are not necessarily common knowledge, you know, but it definitely, I think it's important to at least say, yes, this happened, but we're not doing that anymore. You know, um, it's just very, very important, I think. Yeah. And I think this just gets into a lot of just like what is a conversation in so many industries now of how how do you grapple with this? Because you don't like you're not going to just like say, I'm not going to produce these hybrids anymore. Like that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense to like say, OK, Sri Lanka, you can't can't do that anymore. That's the, the British messed that up. You're done. Um, yeah. And it's 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 really the big question. I don't think anybody has an answer. I'm sure lots of people have answers, but I think if you look at it with any nuance, it's hard to come up with an answer for what is to be done about this sort of history. Absolutely. For me, I really try to support like small holders that are people from that place that, you know, they grew up around tea. So they really know quite a lot more than what some foreign person coming in to run things would would know, you know. And so there's definitely a lot of really great tea estates and and smallholders in all these different countries where tea really was established by colonialism, but they're kind of taking it on as their own now. Um, And I find that's really kind of where I try to spend my tea dollars um, rather than like, say, a big company that's still running, you know, these large plantations that definitely, you know, there's no way it could be entirely ethical. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, does tea have a... um... Like a like something people can look out for, like an accepted standard um, for places that like are less likely to have human rights violations and things like that. So that's a little bit of a tough thing. Like in many industries, um, there's lots of different certifications like Fair Trade Alliance or different things like that. The trouble with certifications is they cost a lot of money and those systems do still have, you know, potential for corruption. Like technically the living conditions in Darjeeling meet fair trade requirements because things like housing are counted as part of their salary. So they're not paid like the actual full, like what the money salary would be, but they're provided with other things, but you also need money to live too. So (laughs) um, it's, it's definitely a tough one. There isn't necessarily like one certification that everyone has agreed. Like that's the one that like everything under that is good. Yeah, but it sounds like it sounds like this conversation is happening in the tea world. So, like, where could people go if they're like, okay, I want to make sure all my tea is as ethically made as possible? Like, how do people find out find yeah. that out? I I really recommend looking for companies where they tell you where the tea comes from. You want to know who made it, um, when it was made. So much of like, say, if you go to the typical American grocery store, everything just says black tea. There's no other information provided, which is incredible because every literally everything else in the store tells you everything that you need to know about it. <laughs> <laughs> 
except for tea. You know, even in coffee, if you look at your K-cups, they're like, it came from this farm in Colombia. You know, like they're very specific. So I think for tea, it's really, really important to know where your tea comes from, who makes it. I tend to try to support companies that buy their tea directly from the producers versus like the longer your um, supply chain gets, the harder it is to control and know where your product is coming from and that it is ethical. Um, so I think really finding like the shortest supply chain that you can is a really good way of knowing that you're supporting the right people. And I think that's a good rule of thumb for most things. Is the shorter the supply chain, the more likely you actually know what's happening. Yeah. So thank you so much for coming and chatting with me about tea. This was like, I hadn't, I, I didn't know about this guy and this was really fun to learn about him. Plug your stuff. Yeah. So I um, can find you. I definitely would say like anybody who's super interested in Robert Fortune, his particular journals are really kind of boring, um, but <laughs> there is a really great book um, written by Sarah Rose called All the Tea in China, where she basically turned it all into like a narrative fiction, much more more like action-y and interesting than kind of his own personal writings Um can be. But if anybody she, she read she read his journal so you don't have to. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> but if anybody would like to learn more about tea, um you can find me at teaformeplease.com. Pretty much anywhere on social media is at tea for me please, except for TikTok, I'm the real tea for me please because someone took my name there. <laughs> That's rude. <laughs> right. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. This was super fun. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Enjoyed having you. Thank you so much for listening to D-Listers of History. If you enjoyed yourself, be sure to subscribe and drop us a review on whatever platform you listen on. We are a weekly podcast. Next Monday, February 26th, we will release a sidebar episode where we will discuss the history of some sort of current event that's going on. Our next full episode will drop Monday, March 4th. Our new co-host, Mazal, and I will finally get to sit down and record together. We will be discussing the 18th century Black composer, the Chevalier de Saint-Georges. He was a contemporary of Mozart and Haydn, but his career arguably shone brighter than either man, even if history hasn't exactly been kind to him. To follow us, head to our website, dlistersofhistory.com, no hyphens. You can find our social media profiles. Uh, we're going to have a newsletter soon, so you can sign up for that there. Really, anything you want, you can probably find on our website. A huge thank you to our Patreon members. We couldn't do this without you, and we just appreciate you so very much. Now for an episode-relevant audio drop. Hey, Twinnings. A lot of other teas seem to be cults. You're not a cult, are you? No, we were just founded by a guy named Thomas Twinning. He just really liked tea. That is so good to hear. You guys didn't do anything horrific, did you? Oh, by the way, when were you founded? Oh, you know, 1706. Oh no, that time period almost always comes with really bad things. You guys weren't, like, directly related to any of it, were you? Well, actually, fun fact that's less fun, one of our directors also became the director of the East India Company, and he may have also owned shares in the Royal African Company. Well, we've all heard of the East India Company for a trading company. Weird that you guys had 260,000 soldiers at its peak.